morning. This morning's reading is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, who I've loved and longed for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. How good it is to be together. I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, the teacher will meet you in the back there. And uh, let's uh, open with uh, prayer before we turn to God's word. Lord, would you grant us the grace we need, the faith we need, the strength we need to say it is well with my soul, even when it isn't even when things are, are waging against us. Lord, may we look upward and see you there, standing at the right hand of God. Lord, may we trust in you and say, it is indeed well with my soul. It's a tall order, Lord. That's something that's not humanly possible, but you can grant it, and we pray that you would. And Father, we think especially of the um, Christian mission aid, Christian ministry aid, the the. Um, missionaries who were kidnapped in Haiti. Uh, Lord, we pray for their continued faith, their continued strength. Lord, would you be with them in their captivity? And uh, Lord, I pray that they are um, Christ's presence, um, that they are the aroma of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who, are who will be um, condemned. And Lord, we pray for their captors. Lord, would you turn many of them to Christ? Would you lead them to abandon their wicked ways and to trust in a savior who loves them. And I pray that the missionaries would be able to show that to them. And Lord, I pray for um, everybody involved in deciding how to respond to the, um, the gang's demands for a million dollars per person. That obviously isn't gonna happen. So Lord, um, give them grace. Uh, I pray that this situation would end peacefully and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine bright in the middle of it. Lord, we also want to pray for our upcoming outreach on Saturday in the park. Lord, um, would you 
stir the hearts of the saints to show up, to just be present. Lord, help us to be there, um, not as a, a project or um, not as uh, um, an event that we're, we're attending, but Lord, just to be present with people, to be uh, Christ in the midst of them. And Lord, we pray for the people who we might run into. Would you create many gospel appointments, chances to share lives with people, um, to, to be authentic, to show who we just are at our core. And Lord, at the middle of that, that Christ would shine bright. So be with us in these things we ask. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, um, Holy Spirit, we need your help. Um, there is some wonderful, tremendous things in this passage, and we want to get them. We want to drink deeply from that fountain. So Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our minds and hearts? Would you guard my mouth that I might say things that are helpful? And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I think everybody is familiar with the story of um, the Wizard of Oz. Everybody knows that, right? Uh, Dorothy Gale gets carried away to a magical land by a tornado, and um, soon she's off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And uh, along the way, uh, she meets a scarecrow without a brain, a cowardly lion, and a tin man with no heart. And together, as they're traveling, they face all these different uh, challenges, these obstacles, but when they get to the wizard, the wizard sends them on a quest. They have one more quest that they have to do. And so it's the most dangerous of all. It's the most perilous. And along the way, they find what they were looking for. So to, uh, to quote the grammatically um, tortured song by America, Oz never did give nothing to the tin man that he didn't, he didn't already have. So what they found was along the way, the tin man found he had a heart. The, the lion found that he was courageous, and the scarecrow figured out that he was pretty smart. Um, the quest wasn't to go earn those things. It was to discover that they had them already. So in the end, Dorothy gets to go home uh, because there's no place like home. Aw, isn't that wonderful? That's a good story. Um, there's a reason that's a good story. Um, there's a reason that that story was written in the 1800s, made into movies in the early uh, uh, 20th century, and why I could tell the story here and everybody in this room would know it. It's because, first of all, Frank ba L. Baum, he wrote a good story. He had imaginative characters that we could connect with, and, but he did more than that. He tapped into something that we all know we have. We all have a longing in our heart for something that we're not. And what the story he tells them is, is you can discover it in yourself. Um, kind of, sort of. What we're going to look at this morning is we're going to see that there is something that we want in our heart. And what we're going to find out is that it has been granted to us. And we don't have to go on a quest to earn it, but along the journey we'll find that we've already had it, that we, it's been given to us. And that thing is peace, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So this morning as we begin chapter 4, we're going to look at how to pursue peace, the need to pursue peace in verses 1 through 3. We're going to learn to pray for peace in verses 4 through 7. And then we're going to ponder peace in 8 through 9. Now, I'm not proud of that last one. It was the only way I could get the, uh, the acrostic to work where it was a P, ponder peace. But um, I think it's close. I don't think it's bad. Uh, so let's, let's take a look. Let's start here. Uh, pursuing peace. Uh, verse 1 in chapter 4 really is a bridge between the last section and the next. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 
Remember the relationship that he has with the Philippian church. He loves these people. He is just so enamored of them. He loves this church. And so he encourages them, stand firm in the Lord, but he doesn't do it in an argumentative way or a boy, you better. He does it with this appeal to the heart. My brothers whom I love, my beloved, please stand firm in the Lord. And so that's his, his desire. Now where he goes with that is he's going to start talking about how they're having problems. He, he doesn't gloss over the problems they have. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So this is the only time in the entire Bible we know who these people are. How would you like that to be your, your thing? Is you're recorded in an in, in inspired word for eternity by not agreeing. It, it's kind of a dangerous thing, but Paul does it. Again, he's, he's doing this. He's not calling them out in a way to shame them or to put them down or anything. He doesn't tell us any more about this other than the fact that they need to agree in the Lord. So he doesn't parade all of their issues before them. Um, he goes on and he talks about um, uh, those whose names are written in the book of life. So I, I don't think he's looking at Eodia and Syntyche and saying, well, one of them's not saved and they're not getting along or something. This isn't a matter, it doesn't appear anyway to be a matter of doctrine, a matter of salvation. It appears to be something much more difficult to solve. And that's a personal issue between the two. Now, if it was doctrine, we can go to the scripture and we can say, thus saith the Lord, look at this doctrine. Why do you disagree on this? Let's figure this out because we have an external standard. But when it's just two saints who don't agree on something that's not biblical, it's not a matter, that matter that's huge, how do you deal with that? That takes a lot of wisdom. It takes time. It takes discussion. It's, it's hard to do. But the stakes are really high because Eodia and Syntyche apparently are well enough known in the church that if they don't agree, it could damage the church. This could cause real problems. So when we look at these folks and we think, oh man, they're, they're not agreeing, recognize that Paul wouldn't call them out if it wasn't important. This is something significant to him. When two saints don't agree, if they're prominent enough in the church, they can cause damage within the fellowship. And so Paul entreats them, he begs them, please find a way to agree in the Lord. Now, how are, how are they going to do that? Obviously, if they could, they would have by now. So Paul turns and he says, we need to invite other people into this. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. So he looks to the congregation. He looks to the body and he says, help them. So who is he talking about when he says true companion? Um, I don't want to get all lost in the details. Let me just sum it up real quick. One thought is he's talking about Epaphroditus, who will be carrying this letter back to them. So as Epaphroditus is reading the letter to them, he says, true companion. Oh, that's me. Um, so he's, he's sending it back, and he's here, the congregation hears Paul commend to them Epaphroditus that he would help them resolve this. So he might give them some weight in that discussion and, and listen to this man. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is the word itself could be a name. Um, it is Zisigus. So how would you like that on your birth certificate? Zisigus. What, uh, what, uh, what that could be is it could be a person's name, but it's, there's no record of that in anywhere in the first century that that was the name of the person. So it, uh, the, the way that the word is translated is not um, companion, it's yoke fellow. So it means, the, the word itself actually means to be under a yoke. So, you know, originally it was talking about two oxen yoked together or something like that, but it became this uh, way of talking about two people who are working together. So it's, it's these two people who are, who are united. So the third theory is it's Paul's wife. Didn't know Paul had a wife. Still don't know if Paul had a wife. 
We're not sure. It's hard to pin down. But here's the thing is, is it could be his wife because he does talk about marriages being yoked together. And so that's the thought where that yoke comes from. Um, there's hints that Paul may have had a wife, but they're not conclusive. So 1 Corinthians 9.5, Paul asks the question, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? So Paul says, don't I have a right to bring along a, a believing wife? That doesn't nail it down. It doesn't tell us if he had one. It's just saying, I have the right to. So it could be. Um, the other one from, comes from 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 8. Paul says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So the thought here is, we know what widows are, right? Widows are women whose husbands have died. What does he mean, the unmarried? Well, one biblical scholar argued that unmarried was a way of saying widower. The, word, the Greek word for widower is very rare, um, hardly ever came up, and is never recorded in Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament. So it, this would be a way of saying widowers. Um, and then he says, uh, it's good for them to remain single as I am. The word single is not in the text. He says, instead of what it says is, it's good for them to be as I am. So that's the thought that this is Paul saying, to the widows, remain that way. To the widowers, be like me. So he had a believing wife and she died. Um, apparently she died after he wrote the letter to the Philippians or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's the best answer. For me, I think the best answer is it's probably speaking of Epaphroditus, and it's speaking of him in glowing terms, of uh, my yoke fellow, my fellow worker, the one I'm, I'm together with in ministry. Because where he goes, or the other people that he mentions, is he says, help these two women. They were partners with me in ministry. So as I was preaching the gospel, these two women were working with me, and we had this common bond in the past. And it wasn't just them that were working with me. It's also this man named Clement. And Clement is, um, comes up later outside of biblical history. He, uh, he was a, a bishop of Rome, and he wrote an epistle to the church at Corinth. And it was considered for possible inclusion in the canon. Uh, one of the early listings of biblical books included Clement's letter. Um, but it was eventually excluded because it didn't fit the criteria. So this is a guy who, I mean, if his letter was considered possible scripture, he must have been really held, well, held in high esteem by the church. So Clement is one, and then also to the rest of my fellow workers. So these are the people that he's worked with. So to call the first person the true yoke fellow is putting them in that same category. And what he's saying is, you guys help these women. All of you all come together and help these women, everybody whose name is written in the book of life. So all of you help somebody. So if you are having a problem with a Christian in the church, I don't think we have any issues here, but it could come up. If you have a problem with a, a person in the church, it would be easy in our culture to just go, well, I'm out of here. You know, I, I, I'm leaving. There's, there's tens of churches between here and home. I'll pick one of them. But that wouldn't necessarily be the best. The, the, what we're looking for here is we're looking for that peace. And so sometimes peace is hard to come by. And so work with that person. And the, what Paul is demonstrating to us here is appeal to the church. Now, we don't have to turn it into church discipline and come up here and we'll announce the, the struggle between these two. Um, this person thinks you don't put that much butter in chocolate chip cookies, and this person does, and they can't get along. That's not a matter of church discipline. But it could be, why are you two fighting over this? 
and so we could sit down and talk together. So there are mature people in the church who could help you with that. It's better to reconcile is the lesson. It's better to reconcile than to just leave because if you leave, the wound is still there. So work on reconciliation. Now, admittedly, that sometime is not possible. It just isn't going to happen. But that should be our goal. That's what we should pursue. We're looking to pursue that kind of peace. And, and what we're going to see as we go through the rest of this section is, is Paul has given us a ton of reasons why, not only why that peace is possible, but he's going to show us how we can achieve that kind of peace. It, it, he's going to lay it out for us. So don't leave. <laughs> Please don't leave. Please don't leave. Um, work it out. Seek help working it out. And then if it's just not possible, then, you know, that may be the last resort. So where he goes with us next is he takes us to how do we get to that peace? Pray for peace. You have to pray for it. In verse 4, he begins with this statement, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul commands you to rejoice. So let me say it. Rejoice. Do it now. If rejoicing is just an emotional response, can I command an emotional response out of you? I can't tell you, fall in love with me. <laughs> I, I tried it when I was younger. It didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work very well at all. You can't command an emotional response. So rejoicing, that, that joy that we seek, has to be something greater than. It is an emotional response. There's an emotional component to it, but it has to be greater than that. And so when Paul commands them to rejoice, he doesn't just say, now figure it out. He's going to go on and explain to us, how can we rejoice? How do we get to the point where our heart finds contentment in God irrespective of our, our circumstances, where we're not tied to what's happening to us. How do we get there? Well, he, he continues on in verse 5. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. Um, that word reasonableness is really, I think, a poor choice in translation. What it really means is gentleness. Let your gentleness be made known to everyone. In other words, be so gentle that people know you by that category. That, that that's how they would explain you, is this is a gentle person. Let it be known to everyone. Be recognized by that. Be conspicuous in your gentleness. But I got to tell you, don't do it to be noticed, but do it often enough that it is noticed. Make it a category of who you are is a gentle person. And there's tons of scripture that give, offer you great promises. A, a gentle word will turn away wrath. There, there's so much benefit to that. Um, when you adopt a spirit of gentleness, then you're actually finding one of the ways to find joy. You will not find joy if your focus is on yourself. If you are so bent inward that it, it, the only way that things are going to work is if I get what I want and, and I'm made happy and if everybody surrounds me and tells me how wonderful I am. If you look inward, you will never find joy because you're not enough. You're just not. The way to find joy is to look elsewhere to look towards others. That's why he says to let your gentleness be made known is so that other people experience that. And in turning and serving and pouring out and, and, and forgiving and reaching out to other people, that's where you'll begin to find the joy. Um, there's a um, halfway house across the street and right next to me. They're recovery houses. And the people who are there are trying to either get off of or establish themselves getting off of drugs. And it, it's hard. And one of the things, I was talking with the owner next door, and I said, you know, we had a problem with a neighbor. One guy was not doing well. And I said, you know, he, he's got to be able to reach outside himself. That's the only way he's going to see 
beyond what he's doing is to think of other people, and he's not doing it. And the guy agreed. He said, he's, we've got to do that. So that's how you, you don't have to be hooked on drugs. You could be just hooked on yourself. Look beyond yourself. Let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to other people. Make it a hallmark for them. And then he offers this great promise. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. What great news is this? How on earth is the Lord at hand? It has been 2,000 years since he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. How could it be that he is at hand now, that he's about to return at any moment? It's been 2,000 years. Well, I'm reading a book. Uh, just, yeah, I'm still reading it, I guess, called Reading the Times by Jeffrey Bill, Bill Bro. Um, it's written kind of academically. It's published by AB, uh, InterVarsity Press, uh, academic. So it's a little bit, you know, not kind of popular level. But the thoughts in there are great. And one of the most challenging things in that book is he was talking about our conception of time. How do we conceive of time? And he said there's two ways to look at time. There is mundane time. In other words, earthly. Mundane means earth. So worldly time or chronological time. And that's each moment builds on the next. So every moment is equally important because they're all carrying us towards something. So that's chronological time. It's how we experience time. That's what this watch does is it tells me chronological time, moment by moment. But when we think in those categories, then each moment is crucial. The other way to look at time, he says, is what he called divine time. And what divine time, it includes chronological time, but it steps back. And God seems to look at time lumped around significant events. So the chronological time is leading to these big events. So, for example, uh, when we looked at Daniel, Daniel had this vision of the sea rolling and these creatures coming up out of the sea. Those creatures were different kingdoms. That, that wasn't chronological time. That was marking epochs, the, the time under Nebuchadnezzar, the time under the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, the time under the Greeks, the time under the Romans, the time at the end. So all of those things were part of the way God conceives of time. So when you look at something like um, 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter asked the question, and people still ask this question, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's chronological time. That's moment by moment is important. How come it's been 2,000 years, you guys? I guess he's not coming back, right? Peter answers him in verse 8. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So divine time takes this step back and goes, you are in the last days, the final days, which so far is 2,000 years, could be another 1,000. But it's the final days because what is marking this epoch? What is the, the significant event that's marking this chunk of time for God? Jesus' return. He's coming back. The Lord is at hand. This period that we're in is the last days, however long it lasts, because that's how God conceives of time. This significant event is coming. So the Lord is at hand, friends. He's here. He's, he's at the door. He's about to enter in. He could step through at any moment. That's tremendous news. That's really great news. Why? Because when he shows up, what's going to happen? He's going to set all things right. The proper king will be on the throne, not the bozo we elected last time or the next time or eventually. 
He's going to step in. This is the man who should be on the throne. This is the king who should be reigning. He'll reign with perfect righteousness, with perfect justice. The Lord is at hand. Are you struggling? Are you having a hard time? Are things difficult for you? The Lord is at hand. When he comes, he puts death away for us. It's, it's going to be great. There's another way, though, that the Lord is at hand could be speaking about Jesus. And that comes from... Um, oh, I don't know where that note went. Uh, rats. Had a great quote. <laughs> it seems to have disappeared. When you're typing, your thumb hits the trackpad and it selects a whole paragraph and you hit a character and it all disappears. Yeah, that's me. Um, there's a psalm that talks about the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I think it's Psalm 38. He's near to the brokenhearted. So the Lord is at hand is Jesus became human. He took on the form of a servant. He's walked in our shoes and so he's close to us, not just physically, but emotionally. He, he, he is with those who are weak and broken. So the Lord is at hand. He's, he's with us. And so since this is true, since Jesus is going to return, and when he comes, it could be any moment now, we're in the final days. And even when he's with us now, through his spirit, that gives us the ability to do what chat, or verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. You have all that the Lord needs you to have. He has given it all to you. It's laying out before you. Since he's near... He's, he, he, you don't need to be anxious. Now, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. If we didn't, if we weren't anxious for stuff, he wouldn't have had to tell us that, would he? So we are anxious. And so we do need to hear Paul tell us, you guys, be anxious for nothing. Really? Well, how, Paul? How do I get through that? In everything, by prayer and supplication. Everything. What's included in Everything. It's right there in the word, everything, in everything by prayer and supplication. So don't be anxious when anxiety rears up, when it starts swallowing you, pray. And listen to the two words he uses for prayer, prayer and supplication. They're two different words to describe basically the same event. But since he puts them side by side, when we think of prayer, prayer could be praise, Lord, your, your, your beauty has overwhelmed me this morning. It, it could be thanksgiving, it could, or a prayer, it could be um, um, praise, it could be uh, remembering God's faithfulness in the past, it could be those things. And then supplication is basically what it sounds like, which is asking, Lord, I need help. But he says, do all of these things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. In other words, when you approach the Lord and you ask and you say, Lord, I need... The attitude is with thanksgiving. He doesn't say, pray, ask God, and if he answers, then you can give him thanksgiving. How on earth are we supposed to pray? How are we supposed to ask, Lord, I am suffering right now, and, and, and things are very difficult. I have great pain. What am I supposed to do? And thank you. That, that's a supernatural thing, but Paul's going to help us to understand that. He's going to help us see how we can do that, how we can offer our prayers with thanksgiving. So with prayer, and uh, supplication and prayer, make all our needs known to God. That's where he goes. So the last part is um, uh, where he's going to ask us. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, and now I find my quote. Doggone it. 
Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's how. There you go. So since he's near, we can ask these prayers. So what is prayer then? When we pray, what, what are we doing? Well, we don't pray to inform God of something he wasn't aware of, right? You don't bring something to God's attention that, oh, hey, I'd forgotten that. Thank you for bringing that up. We don't pray to help God understand the severity of the problem and the urgency that we feel. We're not, we're not praying to help him understand the situation better. We're not praying to arouse him from indifference. Lord, you're aware, you understand, and you don't care. Um, so I'm praying to you. And we don't pray to make him like us enough to do us a favor. I'll say good things in prayer, and you'll like me, and then you'll answer. So why do we pray? We pray to align our hearts with his and what he's doing. So we can offer our prayer with thanksgiving because what we're doing is we're stepping in line with him. And so we have to understand who he is and what he's like. He is good. And, and if he's good, then what's coming your way has passed through his hands. Even though we may not like it, it may be difficult. So if we pray this way, if we pray with this, this uh, attitude of thanksgiving in the asking, then what Paul says in verse 7 is, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You have approached the issue with a presupposition that God is good, God knows, and God is answering. He is doing exactly what he should be doing at this moment. And so I'm thanking him for it. And so if you approach it with that, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how do we get that attitude? It would be easy to approach prayer and, and say, Lord, I thank you, and inside you're just still seething. Um, by the way, that's okay. That's not a bad place to start if that's where you have to be. But how do we adopt a point, a, a posture? How do we get to a point where we can say, Lord, thank you for this, even though I don't like it. Thank you for this. And that's where Paul goes in the last one. We have to ponder peace. We have to think in specific ways. So verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, when Paul says think about these things and he gives us that list, he is not talking about... Um, Greek poetry. He is not talking about the glory of Roman architecture. He, he's not talking about the songs that are sung in, in Asia. What is he thinking of when he says, if there's anything that fits these categories? He's thinking of doctrine, doctrine of God. What is, who is God like? If there's anything true, honorable, just, whatever it is, think on these things. So that doesn't deny the reality of goodness in this world that we can experience. Um, I was listening to uh, cello solos by a man I'd never heard of, and it just blew my mind how beautiful this guy could wring these tones out of this cello. It was, it was stunning. And then there was another one that I was listening to. I forget who that was now. I'm drawing a blank. But it was human singing. It was voices singing to, to, uh, to music. And, and that's beautiful, that's, that's honorable, that's great stuff. But you don't look at that and go, well, that's the end of it, is this person had carved this piece of wood nicely and is able to wring a tune out of it. It's, Lord, you've given us music. You've made us capable of doing these things. You have to think about what's true. What's true about that music is, is it's beautiful. And where did it come from? Why do we have it? So think about these things. It, it's not enough to think, 
about the nice things that you enjoy in life. It's, it's what Paul is telling us to do is take the next step. So think about this. Think about the fact that God is omnipotent. He is able to do anything that he wishes. So when you're suffering or unhappy or bored, this reminds us that nothing is oppo- that's opposed to us being happy in him, nothing that's opposed to us being happy in him is beyond his control. None of it. There is nothing we will face in this universe or in heaven or in our hearts that is stronger than him. This is true. It's lovely. It's commendable. It's worthy of praise. It is a song that we will sing in heaven, Revelation 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who was, for you have taken your great power, and have begun to reign. So think on this, the the omnipotence of God, the power of God to do anything he wishes. There is nothing arrayed against your happiness that God cannot overcome. Think on that. Think about the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity took the form of a servant, and he came not to be served, but to serve. He came in humility and with meekness, A smoldering wick of your hope he will not extinguish. The bruised reed of your heart he will not snap. The omnipotent God came to us gentle and lowly in heart. This is pure. It's lovely. It's worthy of praise. Think on these things. Contemplate for a moment his covenant faithfulness. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful because he has no one greater than himself to swear by, So he swore by his own name. He cannot deny himself. So when your weakness and that badgering sin plague you, when doubt whispers, when sin is crouching at the door waiting to have you, recall God's covenant and that it doesn't rest on you. God's covenant promise is made because he had no one greater to swear by by himself. This is true when we doubt it. It's honorable and pure since God doesn't wink at our sins, but deals with them. And he deals with them in the covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Think on these things. Drive doctrine into your heart. My understanding of doctrine is that if it doesn't reach the ground, that's how I like to describe it, if doctrine doesn't hit the ground, it's probably wrong. There, there is an application, there is a reason that God has revealed these things to us. And so if it's just something nice and lofty to argue about, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, that's not real doctrine. Did Jesus shed his blood for your sins? Are you forgiven by faith alone? That's a doctrine that reaches all the way to the ground. That hits me. That's what I need to hear. Think on these things. Drive these doctrines into your heart. Think on them. And then Paul says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. You have to take those beautiful, wonderful doctrines and practice them. Why can we pray? Because God is omniscient, because he's all-powerful, because he's good, because he cares, because he's made a covenant with you. Jesus has opened a way for you to approach heaven. Why should you pray? Because all this wonderful doctrine. You have heard these things. Put it into practice. And you've seen them in Paul. As we look through the New Testament, the book of Acts, his, his writings, we see in Paul a man who is gentle. 
Now, sometimes his gentleness means railing at the Corinthians. But he's a gentle man. He, he is approaching them from a position of love. I love you guys. I love you knuckleheads. Would you please stop doing that? Because I care. That, that's a gentle heart. He's walking before us. He's saying, put these things into practice. You've seen them in me. So do them. So that, that word about putting it into practice, the, there's a New Testament dictionary that says, when Paul tells the Philippians to think about the excellence and praiseworthy things, thinking in view, the thinking he has in view arrives at sound conclusions that demand corresponding actions. So thinking arrives at a sound conclusion, and that conclusion isn't then, hmm, it demands action. It says you must, because this is true, you must. And so that's what we have to do. And then here's the great promise. The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. And we don't get to that point and forget everything that came before and go, oh, if we do these things, then, that, then he's with us. We put all of this together and we say, because Jesus became human, because he took the form of a servant, because he came to us, because he died in our place, because he rose and triumphant over sins, God is with us. Because God is good and he cares and he listens, God is with us. And so the peace that he brings will accompany us. So on our journey, as we're traveling to the, the wizard's castle, um, gosh, I hate saying it that way. I would prefer to go with um, John Bunyan. As we're traveling to the celestial city uh, in Pilgrim's Progress, what we discover along the way is that we had the thing that we were pursuing. God has given us that peace. We want that peace. We, we strive for that peace. I want that peace in my heart. And as we go, we're learning God has given it to us. And here's the way he's given it to us. And here's another way. And here's another way. So God never did give nothing to this tin man that he didn't already have. <laughs> Once I was in Christ, I had what I needed. And so pursue that. That's what he's calling us to do. If you have aught with a brother or sister in the, Christ, or in the church or in Christ in general, if you're wrestling with somebody, pursue peace. Let your gentleness be known to that person. Let them know that you care. Contemplate, think about the things that are true about God and pray according to that. Put those things into practice. That's why in 2 Peter 1.3, Peter says, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine power Think on these things. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and how to live life well, godliness. And how has he done that? He's done that through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence. As we ponder who God is, as we understand more of who he is, as we think on these things that are true and right and beautiful and just, it has an effect in our lives. It reaches all the way to the ground. It reaches all the way to you, however lowly you are. And so that's the promise that Paul wants us to have. That's, that's the, the goal that we're heading toward, is that peace. So you have it. Discover more of it on the journey. Let's pray. Lord, how are we supposed to speak about peace that surpasses understanding? Lord, we know when we have it, 
we can feel it. it. It doesn't make sense necessarily. Bad things have happened, and yet there is a peace that surpasses understanding. And so, Lord, would you make us a people who pursue peace? Would you cause us to be on that journey looking for where we gain our peace? And, Lord, remind us that we're in this together, that it's a body of believers working together. Nobody has to go solo on this. They won't make it. Lord, we pray that you would grant us peace. We ask this all in Christ's name, with prayer and supplication. Amen.